Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. Good morning. Is my, is my mic on? Okay. Lamentations. Yeah. The weeping book. Lamentations 5.15. Our dancing has turned into mourning. We've all experienced this. Every one of us has experienced this in our life. We've all experienced loss. It's the human condition. All the way from a little child who lost their toy and is crying to the 80-year-old who's lost their partner to death. We know what it is, loss. And it's just, not just the loss of people in death, you know. Some of us have lost relationships, divorce, breakup. Some of us have lost our health. Maybe the function of a body part or maybe a body part is lost. Maybe your hearing, your sight. Maybe we've lost job, a job or career. Loss is, uh, is big. Lots of loss in this world. Maybe we've lost finances, gone bankrupt. It's painful. I have a list of 70 common losses. Yeah, I give them to my clients and they check off the ones they've experienced. And you know what? Most of them check off half or more close to half. I've, I check off 40-some on that list. And the, the older you get, the more you check off. It's part of life. So as a professional counselor, clinical counselor, I get, I get people coming to me that don't know what to do with their loss. They tried everything, and they come to this place where they feel they're stuck. They don't know what to do. And they come for help. So as Abraham said, he wanted a clinical, professional view of handling loss today. So the only Bible text I'm going to quote has already been done. <laughs> Most of my clients aren't Christian, and yet they have loss. And they come for help. Here's what I find interesting. That there's a lot of Christians that have this mindset, this belief that no matter what emotional problems you have in life, uh, if you're a Christian, a good Christian, you ought to be able to solve them all by faith and Bible study and prayer. It doesn't work that way. And then when people find they can't, they feel like they're failures. They're not good Christians. And many of them refuse to come to professional counseling because they think that's weak or that's... You're not good enough. It's proof that you're not a good Christian. It's one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons I wrote my book. Bridges to Freedom, Creating Change Through Science and Christian Spirituality. I believe in it because, you see, God created us biopsychosocial spiritual beings. It's all connected. Our, our body affects our minds. Our mind affects our body. Our, our minds affect our relationships. Our re relationships affect our minds and our spiritual life. And our, it, it's all connected. 
And God created this body to, if I cut the flesh, it heals itself. If I break a bone, it mends itself. But you know, sometimes we have to go to a professional to help with that mending or that healing, to get a bone set, to get a cast, to get the right bandages, to get antibiotics for infection. And so even with emotional wounds, that wounds that can't be seen, sometimes we do need professional help. My teacher in university said, Don, you're a heart specialist. Don't apologize for it. There's more to life than just the spiritual life. God created us, biopsychosocial, spiritual beings. There's kind of a, basically a rule of thumb, or, and that's something like this. For major losses, the average person can take up to nine months to be able to come to a place of functioning again. And as a rule of thumb, I always say, if you, if you get past 12 months and you're still not functioning, you need some professional help. Go for professional help. There's no, there should be no shame in seeking professional help. No shame. What do we mean by maybe getting stuck? Because some people come for counseling because they're stuck and they can't get, they're 12 months and they're still stuck. How do you know you're stuck? Here's, Here's some ideas of how you know you're stuck. And here's probably the number one problem is you're, you stop talking about your loss. And you might go, what? What are you talking about? Isn't that, isn't that when you're done, you stop talking about it? No, people, people stop talking. They stop talking because it becomes taboo. You can't talk about this anymore. People just don't treat you right. So you have to clam up and shut up. And that's not good. Another symptom that you're stuck is you just lack joy. There's no more joy. Life is just joyless. That's not good. You need some help. Or another one is you actually develop physical illness or maybe a series of physical illnesses that you can't explain. It's a mind-body connection again. I have talked to doctors who say 85% of their clients, whatever they have, probably not a broken arm from falling off a bicycle, is caused by stress. Perhaps another one is just generalized depression. Depression. Can't get out of depression. Or insomnia. Or maybe lack of appetite. Or maybe too much appetite. Perhaps people get very cynical and they get very pessimistic about life. It's a sign that you're stuck. Suicide. Thoughts of suicide. You're stuck. And what about people who just are unwilling to ever trust someone again? And they're just unable to find another relationship because they're so stuck. So stuck. So what I do as a professional counselor is I help people get unstuck. That's basically it. And the first thing I do is I normalize loss. I normalize it. After all, we've been taking uh, track, keeping track and statistics for a long time. And we, we now know st statistically that 100 people out of every 100 people die. It's common. It's something we live with. Loss is something we we live with every day. And so I, I will take my client and I will have them do the checklist. 
Check every loss on this 70 and add some more if you want, because there's a place for that. And then we look at it. And I love to do this with groups, because in groups, you find support. You see, many, many people get, get stuck in this idea. No one knows how I feel. That's where they get stuck. No one knows how I feel. Put them in a group and they start telling each other their stories and all of a sudden you feel like, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Other people feel like me. That's very therapeutic. It's very helpful to hear the stories of others. So grief and loss groups are wonderful tools in dealing with grief and loss. And so I have the people share and people start to discover, oh, you have a lot of losses just like I do. Wow. You see, even animals, even animals suffer loss. Uh, you've probably read stories of two dogs raised in the same home, one dies and the other one just feels depressed, like gets down and depressed. And one, one memorable story, that I, a movie that I saw, I don't know the title of it, but it was just a heart-touching story of a dog who, who every day would go with his master to the train station, his master would take a train to work, and that dog would stay there until the end of the day when his master came home. He'd be there to greet his master, and one day his master never came home. And that dog stayed and lived outside of that train station, became a fixture of that community until the day that dog died. Have you read about crows? Crows actually have a mourning ceremony. They gather together in a tree, and they actually mourn the loss of a crow. And they have special language that they speak. And it's amazing what crows do. And I'm sure you've heard about elephants. You know that phrase, an elephant never forgets? As the elephants of Africa migrate north and south, depending on the dry season and the wet season, and they, come, they go in herds, but those herds are families. And when one elephant dies along that way, and eventually they grow old and die, the other elephants gather around and they tear. They have tears. And they weep and they mourn the death, the loss, and then they move on. But they will spend a day or two and they will move on. And every time they come past that same place in their migrations, they pause, even if there's not a bone left. They know exactly where it is, and they all pause, and they all mourn again. It's not amazing. Even animals. So it's, we normalize it, because you're not alone. When you feel you're alone, it's hard. So after people check all the losses that they've experienced, I say, now go back and circle all the losses that you feel some pain about still today. And they're, they're quite often very surprised. My goodness, I've only circled less than half of them. Or I've only circled a half a dozen of these 40. Wow. They didn't realize that they were able to, to grieve most of those losses. They didn't even know they had. Then I tell them to go through, and I say, put a star beside all the losses that you still feel pain for, still have pain, put a star, if you, in your gut, in your feelings, believe that's what caused your addiction or maintained your addiction or even increased your addiction, and they can select out of those circled ones, some, not all of them, some of them that they know. 
And then we say, those are the ones we want to work on first. Because usually they're coming for addiction. And I want to just give you a little bit of a clue as to the relationship between addiction and the grieving process. I've created a metaphor for this. I'm going to use a DVD, a movie, a movie on a DVD. And this symbolizes the grieving process, OK? A movie has a beginning, has middle, and has an end. So the grieving process is a process. And when I pop that DVD into the DVD player and hit the play button, the movie begins. Or the process of grieving begins. As soon as there's a loss, the process of grieving begins as soon as the loss occurs. However, if you go to you know, your booze or your drugs, you numb yourself, you've just put the pause button on the movie. You've pressed the pause button. And here's the point. I have had so many people that have said, Don, I have never been sober for five years, 10 years, 20 years. I've had people say, I have never been sober in over 30 years, not a day. Well, guess what? That pause button has been on for 30 years. You come here to treatment, and guess what happened? You just pressed the play button, because now you're sober. And all of those emotions, exactly the, the way it were when you pause that pause button, it just starts right from there. And if you've had multiple losses during those years, then you've got the pause button on a whole bunch of losses. You come into treatment. No wonder you're so overwhelmed. No wonder this seems so impossible to do, to live like this sober. It's too painful. It's so easy to relapse because all of this pain has been put on pause. You see? It's not easy for the person in addiction who has done this. And, and of course, it's, it's pain. They're simply reacting to the pain. And I have some assessments, and I give, a, I give an assessment, and I'll say, let's do this assessment on this loss. Let's see how you're coming on that loss. And they do the assessment, and a lot of them will find, you know what, I'm doing pretty good on that loss. Or they'll find, you know, that loss really needs more work. So let's work on those losses before the other losses. But more than anything, I talk about the grieving process. What is the grieving process, and how does one grieve? Okay? And the most common model, it's not perfect, You've probably heard it. It's the, it's the model that has five parts. And I don't like to call them five steps. They're not steps. There's denial, anger, bargaining, sadness, and acceptance. And they're not steps, because people go through them in different orders, and they go back and forth and forth and back, and they go into acceptance. And before you know it, they're angry again, then they're sad again, then they're bargaining with God again. And, they just go back and forth, but as time goes on, if they're doing the work of grieving, they will eventually more and more spend more time in the acceptance stage, if you want to put it that way. So denial. Denial could be that first, like, I can't believe it. It might just last for a few seconds. Or it could go for months. How does that happen? Well, my daughter Leanne. Yes, granted, she was only about four. But she, yeah, she would have been four. And uh, when mommy died, and we moved back to Canada, the, the kids would say about, they'd talk about mommy. And Leanne would say, mommy never died. She's, she's in Africa. We left her in Africa. And the other kids would get angry. No, mommy died. No, she didn't. 
And they'd have an argument, and I'd just settle down the argument. And I started to worry about my daughter. This is going on for months. Mommy never died. And I, got a, I didn't know what to do, so I got an idea. I took the slides, because everything was slides, and I transformed some of them into photos. And I made a little photo album. And it was photos of mommy and them, and then pictures of the funeral and the grave. And the sad thing is, at the time, I had no clue that, of what to do. I just did what I thought I should do, and I, I would do it differently. But my kids didn't come to the funeral. They were like a few hundred kilometers away with somebody else. And I, I regret that. But anyway, I had this book on the coffee table. Other kids would look at it, but not Leanne. And then one day, I was in the kitchen, and I was watching. And Leanne was walking around the coffee table, just looking at that book, just going round and round. And I just watched her, and finally she stopped. She picked it up, sat down, and started going through the book, page by page, talking to herself. And then I heard her say as she closed the book, Mommy died and was buried in Africa. Put the book down. Relief. Denial. We can, we can go into denial in many ways. Anger. You go, anger? Aren't you supposed to be sad when someone dies? Not angry? You know what? Death is an injustice. God did not create death. He did not want death. It's an injustice. And anger is the emotion for injustice. That's why God gets angry. There's 44 scriptures where God has the emotion of anger. Because he sees all the injustice. No wonder he's angry. So if you don't feel angry when there's an injustice, you're sociopathic, we say. So anger is appropriate. It's just how you express it. Bargaining. That, that could be bargaining with God, if you believe in God. Like, God, if you just get me through this and help me feel better, I'll become a missionary and move to Africa. <laughs> or you bargain with yourself. Like, you know, if I could just feel better, then I'll stop my smoking. Or I'll quit my drinking. If I, if I could just get feeling a little better. You say, you're bargaining. Of course, sadness is pretty obvious what that is. And then there's this acceptance piece. Now, acceptance is, is huge. Acceptance is not just, well, it happened. And a lot of people have a hard time accepting that it happened, believe it or not. But it's more than just accepting that it happened. It's way more than that. You have to accept what happened back then, but you have to accept your current circumstances as they are as a result of what happened back then. You see, because in this moment, you may be out of money because you lost that job. In this moment, you may be without that body part because of that accident. In this moment, you might be alone because of that death. You see? And you have to not just accept what happened, but accept your current situation as it is, as a result of what happened. So, here's the truth. Time heals nothing. We talk like, oh, just time will, time will take care of it. Uh-uh. Time takes care of nothing. Really. It's work, or tasks of mourning, we call them, that take time, that cause healing. You can't just go to bed, pull the blankets over your head, and wake up 20 years later and feel good. No, time heals nothing. 
There are certain tasks of mourning. And the first one that we've discovered is quite important, actually, is a service. A memorial service, a funeral. I prefer the celebration of life title. Some kind of ritual, some kind of ceremony. And some people aren't able to go because of distance or physical problems. Or maybe they went, but they were totally skunked, you know, like totally out of it, drunk. And they missed it, really. And that's, un that's, that's sad. And so they, they don't have that opportunity for some closure. It's just one step. It's not the full step, but it's one important step. I encourage people, if they missed it, to make their own little ceremony at home. Bring some friends in, read a poem, have a prayer, play some songs, look at some pictures, tell some stories. My favorite thing is called the celebration of life. That's, that's what I love calling it because guess what? Grieving is an act of love. That's really what grieving is. Grieving is an act of love. And the stronger the love, the greater the pain. The stronger the love, the greater the pain. Yes, I've had a lot of pain in the last few weeks. Finding out about the, the children that are buried in residential school yards breaks my heart. But you know what? If one of my children were there, I'd fall to pieces. But I have so many clients that are First Nations. And even right now, I have a client. And she's one of, get this right, seven sisters and 12 brothers. And one of five who their parents hid, hid them from the government so they didn't have to go to a residential school. And six of the other ones never came home. That's sad. And it breaks my heart to, to have this woman in my group and working with her. And when this all came about, she was in my group. So we did special things to support her through this hard news. See, love and pain go together. The more you love, the more the pain. That's kind of a problem, isn't it? Because instinctually, instinctually we avoid pain, don't we? Absolutely we do. You see, our unconscious autonomic brain, it avoids pain automatically. That's why when you touch a hot stove, you do this. You don't choose to do that. You just do it, because the unconscious autonomic brain avoids pain. And the unconscious autonomic brain, unlike the conscious brain, does not know the difference between emotional pain and physical pain. And so therefore, as soon as you start moving towards love, you feel pain and you automatically withdraw which is why we don't like to talk about things. We shut right up because it feels too painful, so we, we immediately freeze up and we don't talk, which is the very opposite of what we need to do to heal, is talk. And so I encourage people to journal and to talk to whoever will listen. Seriously, whoever is willing to listen, talk to them, because that is leaning into pain. It's leaning into love and it will feel like the very opposite of what you want to do, but it's the way through the pain. Through the pain. And when you talk, and when you journal, talk about your feelings. Be honest with your feelings. Don't pretend. Be honest with how you're feeling. Talk about your anger. I'm angry that my wife did not get to see any of our children go to school on their first day. I'm angry that my wife did not get to see them graduate from high school or to see them get married or to see their, her grandchildren. I'm angry. Why not be angry? That's an injustice. Talk about it. Admit it. 
Put it out there on paper. Talk about it. Because that's the stuff of life. Just be honest. And then emphasize the good things. Like emphasize the things that remember that bring joy and happiness and love. Like, like how you're a better person as a result of this person who is in your life. How that's made you a better person. Reflect on that. Talk about it. Play music that's related to the loss. Some people avoid certain songs. I say, those are the songs you need to play. Lean into it. Lean into it, because music is the language of the heart. Lean into the this, this discomfort. Lean into the love. Focus on the love. And allow yourself to cry. In fact, make yourself cry. What? Yes. Here's how you do it. Some people just don't cry. They have a hard time, but you need to. You go into a dark room, get comfortable, and actually make the vocal sounds of crying until you actually start to feel it. It's, we call it carthotic, and it's amazing. It's important. Tears have toxins that's, that the brain creates out of stress. And that's what loss is. It's stress. It's a very stressful thing. I'm just going to take a little side trip for a bit here and talk about complicated or complex grief. Because, you see, it's not always a simple loss. So, so this represents loss, just the loss. Over here is another thing that goes with this. It's another thing. Let's say that this loss is this person's fault. Or maybe it's even my fault. This person was the drunk driver who killed the person. Uh, it's this person's fault. Or maybe it was my fault that they died. That is complicated grief. So you not only are dealing with the loss, you're dealing with the anger towards this person who caused. And that might even be yourself. So you have to do some forgiveness. you got to forgive and you got to just let that go. you got to forgive yourself. That's even harder for most people. That's where I come in and help people to forgive, forgive themselves. Or you might have this loss, and you might have false guilt. Like a person may feel totally guilty for not being there. If they'd just been there, the person wouldn't commit suicide. I get a lot of that. And I have to just, let's stop. Think about it logically. Could you have been there 24-7? No, that would be impossible. Then, then it's not your fault. And sometimes I have to get downright like rude and graphic and say, did you pull the trigger? No, never. It's not your fault. They made the choice. They made the choice. But I was using heroin with them for 10 years. Okay, but you chose to use heroin, but he chose to use heroin. It's not your fault. And it's hard to deal with false guilt because we call that shame, and shame is deep, and it's ugly, and it hurts. And so that, that shame, false guilt, is, is treated differently than guilt, true guilt. You have to deal with the thoughts. And then there's trauma, the actual trauma, which is usually the false guilt, or something very graphic, like the person died horrifically, and they have this image, this picture in their brain. I have a picture of, of my friend in college. I won't even go into it, but car accident, I saw him, his face. Ah, it was just burned into my brain. I still have it right there. But I, I went to trauma counseling for that. Because you have grief, and then you have trauma. It's two different things. 
And you mix them up and you think it's all grief. No, it's not just grief. It's, it's complex, complicated grief. So we need help for some of this. And guess what? Even if there's no complex grief, sometimes people can say the rudest things. And that really adds to the pain. I mean, it really adds to the pain. Here's number one, what not to do. Okay? Some people avoid, avoid people who have lost. They just avoid them. That hurts. You might say, well, they're just busy. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, I can, I can remember to this day, I'm in the foyer of the Calgary Central Church. My wife had just died. I'd left her in Africa. And I'm there. And I see a long-lost friend that hasn't seen me for two and a half years. And I see them come up the stairs. Our eyes meet, and they dart that way. And I'm looking for them, and they're not to be found after church. They didn't know what to say. And I get that. Because I'm probably the biggest example of, what do you say? I don't know what to say, but what I discovered was, you don't have to say anything. Don't take off. Don't avoid these people. Move towards them. Hug them. Even if you don't say anything, you don't have to say anything. Number two, some people can say some real downright evil things. Seriously. Oh, they think they're saying the right thing, but it's the wrong thing. Like the, the, the missionary that I never saw before until the funeral put his arm around my shoulders and said, Don, we don't know why God caused Nelly to die. We just know that he's teaching you a lesson about something. Oh, that hurts. That's mean. That's evil. This adds to the pain. It doesn't take away from it. Or here's one. People feel uncomfortable, so they, uh, they take, this, they take the, the person that's had the loss and they kind of like nudge them towards other people who have the same kind of losses and, you know, that way they don't have to get their sad on them. That's, that hurts. That really hurts. And then some people flat out say something like, get over it and move on for heaven's sakes. That's not the right thing to say. People need, don't need to be told to get over it and move on, for heaven's sakes. You know what moving on implies? It implies that, that these bits of that person's life, these moments of that person's life, are like an old pair of shoes that you can just discard. No, you can't. This is a life. That life is very present with you. Very present with you. The people that have lost... Nellie and Penny, their lives are present with me in the children that, that we had together and raised together. And now in the grandchildren, the children of my children, they are present. If you know what I'm talking about, they are present. Something else. Nellie and Penny are present in my marriage to Juanita. In this way, in this sense, that my experiences with Nellie and Penny made me who I am today. The person that I am today, which is the person that Juanita is attracted to today. We can't push these things away and, 
and move on. They are present, and we need to embrace them. I haven't moved on. I've moved forward, and I bring the loss with me in my heart. The experience of loss has stayed with me and will always be with me. This past week, this very past week, I spent most of my time uh, filming for seven episodes of a TV show. Couldn't use cue cards. <laughs> or those little things that they show you on TV. I had to, okay? Because I'm looking at the, the two hosts, and one of the episodes is about my losses. And I'm sharing, I'm sharing with them my losses, and I start to share those vulnerable moments. That moment when it, I, I, left, I left the chapel into the darkness of the night, and my, my friend came and hugged me, and he whispered in my ear, Dawn, Nellie didn't make it. She's gone. He had to practically carry me up the, the hill, and I went into my bedroom, and I, I pulled my four little children together and told them, Mommy died. We're not going to see Mommy until we get to heaven. And we all climbed into bed, and we made it through the night together. And that moment with Penny where I was laying in the hospital bed, hugging her when I felt her breathe her last breath, those moments are indelibly in your brain. You're not going to forget them. You might as well embrace them. And as I was, I was talking to these and sharing these stories with the two hosts, one of them is just crying. And I saw a reflection of my own feelings in her eyes. We must remember, it's part of life. It's part of being alive. Those memories will always be with me. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because those are memories of love. And love continues on. And even now, in my new chapter of love, those memories can still inhabit. My love for Penny and Nellie, my grief for Penny and Nellie, and my love for Juanita, they're not opposing forces. They're all parts of the same strand of thread, the same stuff. This is how life is. Just because I was on a TV show doesn't make me special. I'm not special. Thousands of people everywhere have experienced loss. This is a human condition. But all these experiences of death are just part of who we are now. Who we are now. We don't tell people who experience joy to move on. Oh, someone has a baby. Isn't that a wonderful experience to have a baby? I've had four. It's just wonderful. It's the most joyful experience. Five years later, someone comes up to me and says, still celebrating that birth? Get over it and move on. We don't do that. We don't do that, and we don't need to do that for death either, for loss. I don't want to forget my friend Kevin. I don't want to forget. There's no way I want to forget. I want to treasure those memories. And I think every time I go to a movie theater, I'm going to think of Kevin. And that's okay. I don't want to forget my dad. 
I do not want to forget my dad. I want to treasure all those moments. Yes, I don't like those last couple years where he had Alzheimer's. I won't forget that, though. I'm not going to try because it makes me who I am today. I don't want to forget my two fathers-in-law, my two mothers-in-law. I don't want to forget those memories. I want to feel them. And to this day, we have Juanita's dad's ashes in a nice little chest with a little pictures and flowers, and that is a prominent place in our living room, and that's how we prefer to have it right for this season. This is life. This is life. Grief is, grief is one of those things like falling in love and having a baby. You know when you first fall in love, you get it, right? You get, whoa, right? That first love, <gasps> and when you have your first baby, you get it. There's nothing, you, you can't explain it. And when someone close to you dies, you get it. You understand. You now understand. And you have to, you, you, you've been touched. You've been touched with something that you have to realize is not perfectly curable. It's not perfectly curable because there's some wounds that are, are not meant to completely heal, and it's okay. It's okay. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about how the Bible says that in heaven, in heaven, we're there a thousand years. Can you comprehend a thousand years? <laughs> and it's at the end of the thousand years that our tears are wiped away. Now, is that hard to comprehend or what? But I don't believe we'll ever forget this ugly old world. I don't believe so. Because that's what's going to keep us from sinning again for all eternity. We need to remember. Remembering is a part of life. And some things you discover that they can't be fixed. They're done and they can't be fixed. But we remember. Grief is a multitasking emotion. You can feel joy and sadness together. You can feel grieving and love in the same year, in the same week, in the same breath. And it's okay. It's okay. And mourning will turn to dancing again. Just keep in mind that those people who are now grieving will once again laugh. They'll smile and they'll dance. They will. And if they're lucky, they'll find love again. They're going to be moving forward but that's not moving on. 